Hello and welcome to our 28 podcast. Uh, my name is Meera Chandan from the FX Strategy team. And I'm joined today by Arundam Sandilya as well, also from FX Strategy, but in Asia. So suffice it to say, it's been um, quite a week and the second consecutive eventful week. I think Fridays seem to be getting quite eventful these days. Uh, last Friday, we got the shocker US payrolls and ISM services print. Today, it was uh, about strong China data and, of course, the BOJ news, uh, which was quite surprising on the new governor. And then earlier in the week, we had Pavel as well. So there's clearly a lot to um, unpack. Uh, but, you know, our broader themes are unchanged here, still like uh, growth-linked uh, and high-carry sort of currency candidates uh, prefer the growth-linked theme in, um, in China uh, compared to, say, the European region, which is really more affected um, by what's going on on the energy dependence side. But, you know, rather than dwelling into the broader um, issues this week, I think let's focus a bit more on um, on the regional issues because I think there's a lot in play there. So let's start with Asia. Arundam, uh, what's on your mind um, uh, with regards to Asia um, at the moment? Like everyone else, I guess, uh, what's on my mind is Japan. You know, we've had this uh, sort of strong uh, kind of bullish lean on the yen for a number of months now. And uh, one potential uh, sort of spanner in the works could have been the identity of the new governor and what it meant for continuity of policy and so on. Uh, the yen's done a wild uh, round trip uh, intraday. I guess the market simply assumed that whoever is not the continuity candidate is a hawkish candidate, but that's not quite how the price action panned out. Uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, at something of a loss. And why don't I lob it back to you? you know, do you have a better read on this than me? No, it's um, it's definitely been, I think, a surprising choice for markets. I think um, Amamiya was considered the dovish candidate and the most likely one. So certainly, the appointment of Professor Wade uh, is a surprise, um, no doubt. I think, um, you know, the initial feel was the prior comments were perceived as dovish, um, and according to the media report today, he's commented that. You know, the currently monetary policy uh, stance is appropriate. It needs to be maintained for a while. So it's it's kind of, you know, first saying, okay, fine. you know, we took out the dovish candidate, somebody else has come in. And then, you know, now, now sort of it's questionable where this is going to go. I think um, if you look at our sort of uh, BOJ watchers, our, our economists in, in Tokyo, uh, you know, they think the nomination is um, actually appears to be well balanced. They don't really expect a change. Um uh, you know, a change in their view, which is still one of expected uh, gradual normalization in BOJ's monetary policy. And, you know, the main thing that they were expecting was uh, basically another yield curve adjustment um, by the middle of this year, and then an exit of negative interest rates uh, next year. So um, to the extent that uh, BOJ normalization was one leg of the bullish yen view, I think, I think that view is Actually, unaffected. I mean, we'll find out more um, in the coming days. Uh, obviously, we have a we have a lot going on. February fourteenth is when we find out, um, you know, if Professor Voida will actually be nominated as uh, the next uh, governor. That'll be the official um, announcement. And then, of course, next focus will be February twenty fourth to see his comment and thoughts uh, more thoroughly on monetary policy. But to me, what's more sort of interesting right now, if this BOJ side of the equation is not really changing that materially, it's really the US side of the equation, because I was concerned after the payrolls report last week that yen could come under pressure as market prices and more for the Fed. And I have to say, quite encouraged by the price action um, um, this week, um, you know, um, so, uh, you know, so far, 
you know, it looks like it looks like yen strength. Uh, it's going to take a lot more than the news that we've had recently to really derail that. So my 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 personal bias, as you know, has been more bullish on yen, and I, I'm going to continue to stick with that bias. I think the key thing to watch next week, though, on the U.S. side of the equation, is going to be the CPI. Because if you get a firm print there, that obviously has the ability to change the narrative. But medium term, you know, I think yen still still ends up outperforming. But you know, th there's lots going on in China as well. Obviously, we had uh, we had sort of better data come out again this morning. Um, is there anything new to report from your side? Um, what's the best way to stay positioned uh, for the China reopening? So China is certainly in focus. Uh, as you said, we got TSF data this morning. It beat expectations. Um, recently, we've gotten the. Uh, the China PMI for January as well, that came in handily above expectations as well. But I have to say there's something odd happening in the price action of the China reopening trade, uh, you know, China-linked assets, and increasingly uh, a broader cross-section of them have started to weaken in price, even as the underlying economic data has been strong. This is almost like a mirror image of Q4, when growth data was abysmal, but markets were rallying in anticipation of what lay ahead after the reopening. And it makes me think that at least in the short term, you know, like all market trends, nothing goes up in a straight line. This one is perhaps due a bit, a bit of consolidation, maybe a, a healthy cleanse in the near term. But I don't think uh, this trend has been fully exhausted uh, this early into the actual on-the-ground reopening. And considering that the level of China PMI implied by a broad basket of China-linked assets is only about 50-51, uh, still below previous cyclical peaks. Uh, but in terms of how to stay positioned for this trade, you know, after the tremendous rally we've had over the past three months, it's not easy to find good value. That's almost tautological. But in Asian FX, uh, you know, we had long Thai bar for the longest time as our cleanest expression of the Chinese tourism rebound. But we've taken that off recently because it uh, quite significantly overran our fair value estimates. I'd say at current levels, uh, you know, the trades that we have on in terms of long Aussie, they probably still represent our best value in FX. Aussie is still three to four cents cheap on our models. Uh, and other than the well-understood uh, commodity links into China, it also importantly has services links, right? Thanks to Chinese tourism, thanks to Chinese education flows, each of which are worth actually quite sizable 0. 0.4 to 0.5% of GDP, right? Um, in addition to Aussie, if you could give me uh, one more currency to pick, I'd probably say Brazil, uh, which is one that our um, emerging market uh, colleagues favor. Uh, it's lagged the rest of the commodity block as it is beset by domestic political issues. But if you're looking for value, you could probably do a lot worse than the REI, uh, not to mention the very attractive carry that it has an offer. Right? So yeah, so yen is moving. Uh, China is certainly a theme. The other part of this weak dollar story that's animated markets in the last three months has been this European revival. Uh, we've had recently the ECB meeting, which was, uh, you know, for some reason construed as somewhat dovish by markets, even though it didn't quite appear like that on the surface. So just curious to hear your read on the European situation and particularly the euro. It's retraced quite a bit from its highs around 110. Have you seen the peak in the euro? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think to be honest, uh, you know, euro, euro, we could be in a bit of a limbo here. And I think it was interesting. The ECB noted that they, they, you know, that they, they're going to be quite a data dependent in terms of their policy uh, normalization that they're going through um, following the March meeting. And I think similarly, euro is going to be quite data dependent as well. You know, my own personal bias here is that I look at. I look at the underlying factors in Europe at the moment, you know, in the very near term. And um, I think um, I think it's hard for me to kind of look at those factors and say that Europe has already peaked. I think 
um, you know, I do think we need a fresh catalyst to sort of get back to sort of the 110 area, which is uh, which is what our forecast is uh, for the first half of this year, and which is sort of the recent high we got to. But um, I'm not really seeing anything in the in the works at the moment that that should disrupt that, um, you know, sort of upswing. Uh, but you know, the the fact, you know, it's fair to acknowledge that there are several factors that drove euro strength in November through January period, and they're starting to de-intensify now. You look at the rate differential story, for example. That came off, um, you know, following the strong U.S. payrolls report. Uh, it worsened, in, you know, worsened uh, for the euro. The relative equity momentum is also neutralizing, and you know, our equity strategists have been sort of in front of that trade. Uh, but I, I do think it's premature to claim that conditions are in place for a reversal here. And actually, my personal bias bias is bullish. And the reason I'm saying that is that if we look at the underlying um, you know, uh, growth momentum in the region, that's still net-net positive. If you look at our economic activity surprise index, it's still in positive territory, especially compared to the US. Um, if I do the same thing for inflation as well, look, inflation is still, core inflation is stickier in Europe compared to the US um, as well. So I, I actually don't think that, um, that we can kind of say that the rate differential move is now going to move the other way in favor of the U.S. I think I think we're going to see like uh, we're going to need to see um, uh, you know more sort of uh, data here from uh, from uh, uh, from both the U.S. and for um, for Europe to push it further. And I think obviously the U.S. CPI for next week is going to be quite important. I think um, you know th there is uh, you know even if I sort of said you know the bottom line there really is that. If the under so long as the underlying growth dynamic continues to stay intact, and that's why I'm going to be looking at our economic activity surprise index as the main marker. I think we, even if the rate differential go against the euro, so long as we're getting growth, I think you know euro dollar can actually continue to sort of stay on an upswing here. And now, does this mean that you know this is sort of the best growth trade out there? I I would definitely sort of push back against that view. I mean, you know, as we've been highlighting in our publications, I think. I think um, I think uh, the China-linked uh, growth trades are have better visibility and probably more durability to them because at the end of the day we still have a war going on. We still have an energy dependence issue, and you know as and when that flares up, and you know the expectation is that at some point during the year this will be in play. It's gonna be disrupting this euro upswing. But at the moment, right now, I think um, I think you know my bias is still net net looking for sort of a convergence to our uh, our near-term targets of around 110. Okay, uh, that's uh, relatively clear. Uh, but other than the ECB, uh, you know, from afar, it does look like there's considerable um, things that are moving, uh, even in the um, sort of satellite or peripheral European central banks. And, uh, you know, within the Scandinavians, we had the Riksbank this week, there was uh, a lot of volatility in the Swedish krona around that meeting. Um, just walk us through what exactly happened and uh, do you still sort of subscribe to this uh, housing slump-led uh, kind of bearish lean on the krona that we've had for a while? Sure. So the Riks Bank um, was an interesting one. It seems to be a it seems to be a week of new governors actually, because this was uh, this was the uh, new, the first meeting under the new chair for the Riks Bank. Um, um, this week. Uh, it was a pretty hawkish outcome. I mean, the rate increase was as expected, but the certainly the uh, the announcement on the balance sheet side was quite hawkish. Um, look, at the end of the day, you know, they're raising rates. It's an inflation. This is important. It's an inflation-driven move. 
um, it's around the concern for the currency weakness. And um, and I don't really think the Riks Bank has uh, the ability to really change the narrative on um, on Stocky by you know by, by through this channel. And the reason I'm saying that is because if you look at if you look at all of um, G10, the house price decline that Sweden has faced, um, you know, is is really the most pronounced. So in other words, this is the one currency that's been the most sensitive to a high hold or a rising rate environment because the transmission mechanism has been just much quicker um, into stocky compared to, uh, you know, into the housing market compared to any other DM economy. And I think that's continuing to persist. I mean, you know, we've seen some sort of upturn uh, from some uh, from some currencies, uh, from, from some housing data in the last uh, couple of weeks, which, which is sending a bit more of an encouraging signal. I mean, house prices are still declining. They're just declining at a, at a smaller pace. But you compare it to the euro, for example, where this transmission has been much slower, it's really quite striking. And I don't really think this channel is going to go away. So uh, my personal view is that the Riks Bank by itself is not going to be enough here to sort of turn this around um, so long as housing remains weak and continues to be a channel of weakness. The, the difference here is that the regional growth has improved as well. And, you know, we have to acknowledge at the end of the day, Sweden is a small open economy in the region, um, you know, so so it does sort of benefit net net uh, on um, from this improvement. So I think I think Stocky could potentially have a less distressed tone compared to uh, the, the recent months. And I think, uh, you know, we've done well on our um, end. Uh, to sort of tactically um, unwind some of the short exposure we had on Stocky uh, before uh, before the Riks Bank meeting, but uh, you know my personal bias, particularly from a global standpoint, is that uh, you know if you are looking for sort of a euro block rebound trade, I wouldn't pick a low carry currency like Sweden, um, you know, to sort of do that. My preference would be to pick a higher yielder like our EM strategist, for example. I have been pointing to Czech as a as a better example. The caddy is much better. They're also small open economies with high sensitivity to growth in the region. And I think they're just better picks than than something like a stocky where, where the housing outcome still remains unchanged. So uh, more neutral, I would say tactically, but my personal bias is still uh, is still bearish here just from a global context. So that that was a lot to unpack. We focused more um, on the idiosyncratic issues um, this week, but uh, thank you for joining. Uh, more research is available on jpmorganmarkets.com. Uh, this uh, communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on February 10th, 2023.